0: at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 9, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Matthias Wittlinger discusses how desert ants find their way around And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. We could not produce this podcast without the help of listeners like you. Become a member of AAAS, the world's largest multidisciplinary scientific membership organization and publisher of the Science Family of Journals, before September 30th and receive 20% off your membership. Visit AAAS.org slash save to become a member today. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crosby. First up, we have a story on magnets in the brain. Well, not quite magnets, magnetite in the brain, though if humans were capable of magnetoreception, the ability to detect magnetic fields, magnetite would probably be involved. It is involved in animals. that's Dave, let's get back to this. What is magnetite and is it found in our brains naturally? Yeah.
1: So magnetite is this iron oxide compound. It is found in our brains. There's biological processes in our brains that produce magnetite, but there's also magnetite in the environment. And the big question is, is that environmental magnetite getting into our brains? And if so, is it causing problems?
0: The environmental magnetite, that sounds kind of friendly, it's usually from pollution, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, exactly.
0: And this new study suggests that it might be getting into our brains because of pollution. What kind of evidence do they do they marshal?
1: Well, the researchers looked at post-mortem samples of brain matter from the brains of 37 people. Now, most had lived in Mexico City, which is highly polluted, but a few also lived in Manchester in the UK.
0: And when they looked in these post-mortem brains, they found magnetite?
1: They did. And what was really interesting is that the magnetite they found in the study were these sort of round nanospheres. And that's different from the naturally produced magnetite, which tends to be tetrahedral or octahedral. And so the researchers suspect that the magnetite they saw, and they saw about 100 times more of this environmental magnetite than the natural magnetite is coming from outside the body and likely from pollution.
0: How would the magnetite get into the brain?
1: Well, it's so small that actually when you breathe it in, it can actually go straight from your nose into your brain.
0: So we know that it's in the brain. It's most likely from pollution. Is it something that people should be worried about? Is there evidence that this causes harm?
1: Well, what we do know is that high concentrations of magnetite are found in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. So there's been this suggestion that magnetite may play a role in Alzheimer's. And if you're especially getting a lot of environmental magnetite, that may be putting you at a higher risk of this disease.
0: Another point made by one of the people interviewed for the story was that it could be very chemically active. But both of these things aren't really solid evidence that this has health harms in it.
1: Right. This is just an association at this point. So We don't really know whether this magnetite in the brain is causing problems. We just know that it seems to be getting in there in the first place.
0: Next up, we have a story on deal breakers. Online dating has brought a whole new aspect to budding relationships, data. But can we get anything useful out of this seemingly endless pile of tiny interactions? The latest team to try used an unnamed established marriage-oriented dating site which we're not going to get to know the name of. What kind of data did they look at, Dave?
1: Well, they looked at almost 2,000 people in New York, and they were looking at things like things you might find in a dating profile, age, height, weight, marital status, number of children, smoking and drinking habits, even things like education. And
0: when they looked at these interactions, were they just looking at the number of them? What kind of analysis did they do?
1: Well, what they were trying to figure out is what criteria do people use when they decide on a potential partner? And and the two scenarios they were sort of working with were when somebody's looking at your profile, are they sort of treating it more like a job interview where they are considering a lot of different criteria and using those to form a big, balanced picture? Or are they treating it more like a game of Survivor where they're just sort of looking for, you know, something – if they call a deal breaker, just the one thing that will just allow them to sort of cast you off the island and never have to think about you again. Or swipe left or right or whatever it is. That's right.
0: So, yeah, they found deal breakers. They right. found things that would basically shut it down right away right. if it was on their profile. What, what did they see there?
1: You know, some of these were a little bit more obvious than others. I mean, so smoking was a big deal breaker. It was associated with a tenfold drop in interest. But age was also a deal breaker, which is not that surprising. But what was sort of surprising was that it was a really big deal breaker for women. In fact, it was the biggest deal breaker for women. Women uh, were overall 400 times less likely to browse the profile of a man who was significantly older than she was.
0: Another couple deal breakers they saw were height, weight. Oh, and the presence of a photo. Some of this stuff has kind of been revealed before, but how does this new uh, data set, this new analysis kind of move things along? What can we learn from it?
1: As these dating sites become more popular, and it's estimated right now that 5% of people in the U.S. alone that are in committed romantic relationships met through one of these dating, online dating services. And most of these services make their data available to researchers, provided the researchers don't sort of reveal anything personal when they publish their studies, which is why we can't tell you the name of the site. And what all this means is we're getting so much data. In fact, this particular study had some 1.1 million interactions that the researchers looked at. So the more popular these sites become, the more data we have, I think we're going to get a much better clue into what it is, you know, objectively that we really look at when we're choosing a life partner.
0: Lastly, well, we have a story on gambling wolves. This is starting to become my new favorite study structure, (laughs) compare the behavior and smarts of dogs with wolves. I remember one study we talked about where dogs look to their owners to help them solve problems, but wolves just dug in and and kept trying to solve that problem by themselves. Now we're talking about risk-taking. How do dogs and wolves stack up? Okay, Dave, what kind of risks are these animals taking?
1: Well, it's sort of a food risk. Basically, the animals were sort of shown two bowls and the bowls were placed upside down so the wolves or the dogs couldn't figure out what was in them. But one bowl always had sort of like a bland treat. So if the animals chose it, they knew they were going to get a treat, but it may not be the most exciting treat in the world. And the other bowl, about half the time, had a really tasty treat in it, but the other half of the time it had a stone in it. <laughs> so you know, if you're gambling, if you got more of a gambling disposition, you're going to go more for that second bowl because if you win, you're going to your reward's going to be much better. Um, and if you play it safe, you're always going to go for sort of the bland treat. You know, may not enjoy it as much, but you're always going to get a treat.
0: So my guess going into reading this was that wolves are going to be the big risk takers, and I'm right, right?
1: You are right. Wolves took a lot more risks than dogs did. About. of the trials, in fact, the wolves took the sort of the more risky bull proposition versus only about 58% for dogs.
0: My guess was good, but why do the researchers think that there's this difference?
1: They think that over the course of domestication, dogs just became more cautious because they were shifting away from a lifestyle that was very high risk, high reward, hunting, scavenging, to one which was much lower risk. They're basically... In this relationship with humans, they're getting fed. They don't have to do as much for getting fed. And that's going to really sort of reduce their risk tolerance.
0: Mm -hmm. I feel like cats are really being left out here, Dave. (laughs) So are they big
1: risk takers? Well, you know, that's one of my pet peeves that we don't really know as much about our other favorite companion animal cats. And that's because it's much harder to do experiments like this with them.
0: Okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week?
1: Well, sir, we've got a story about solving the mystery of some giant earthquakes that struck the U.S. Midwest in the early 1800s. Also a story about whether we should stop looking for life on other worlds and just seed those worlds with life. (laughs) For Science Insider policy blog, we've got a story about how an outbreak of polio in Nigeria is forcing health workers there to rethink their polio eradication strategies. Also a story about just how much, if any, science-related legislation will be passed in the U.S. before the presidential elections. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. What if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Wonder's online investment platform allows you to earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Your investment in Wonder's fully managed solar investment funds goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly payments directly deposited into your bank account. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com science. That's Wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Hi, it's Sarah. I'm here again to talk about Blue Apron. And you know what they really offer you is fresh, high-quality ingredients that taste great that you don't have to go to the store to get. They ship you food, they ship you the recipe, and then you get to cook at home with your family or with your friends. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. And as a result, they can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. and Their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-red farms, fisheries, and ranches. Some of the meals available in September include paprika-spiced shrimp and cheddar grits with tomato and sweet corn, and eggplant and chickpea tangene with islander pepper tomato and couscous. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's BlueApron.com slash ScienceMag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So how do we track where we're going and where we have been? Do you pay attention to your path, look for landmarks, leave a scent trail behind? The problem of navigation has been solved a number of different ways by animals. The desert dwelling cataglyphis ant was once thought to rely on stride integration, basically counting their steps. But it turns out they have a separate useful method of keeping track of their whereabouts called optic flow. Matthias Whitlinger is here to talk about his work with these amazing creatures. Matthias, can you share some of the more interesting navigational feats of these ants?
2: So, I mean these ants are living in desert salt pans in Northern Africa, and they're really They're really good in in navigating. They're doing path integration, which is basically the same thing that sailors used before they used GPS navigation. So they're using distance traveled and the direction that they are traveling. And they're integrating that and get a homing vector. And with this homing vector, they're always finding home to the place where they started their travel.
0: Now, are they finding the quickest way home or are they following the same path back?
2: So they are finding the quickest way home. It's, it's, they're doing basically the, be, the bee line.
0: Very cool. And so how come they need to be so good at this?
2: It's a very hostile environment. They're foraging at the hottest times of the day, and it's a desert. So surface temperatures reach 60 to 70 degrees Celsius. And they need to be really quick in finding food. And they really need to be very quick in, in get the food back to the nest. They're traveling long distances. And for that, they need to be really fast, and they are traveling at speeds of a hundred body lengths per second.
0: And how far? How far do they go?
2: They go for a couple of hundred meters sometimes.
0: A couple of hundred meters, very fast and very efficient. And now, exactly in your experiments, one ant actually carries another. And is this normal behavior for them? Why? Why would they do this?
2: Yes, this this quite often occurs when the colonies are growing. They are forming these satellite nests. So, a colony has a central nest and they are forming satellite nests to increase their territory. So, inexperienced indoor workers need to be transported from the central nest to these satellite nests. Experienced outside workers, so foragers, that know where these satellite nests are, they are transporting these indoor workers. Hmm. in between these nests.
0: And it's quite an unusual way of carrying them. It's kind of like they hold them in front of their own face, right?
2: Exactly. So the, the carried ant basically is seeing the same thing as the carrier one. It's just looking into the opposite direction.
0: So they're kind of looking up and back, whereas the ant that's carrying them is looking forward and a little down. Exactly. So one of the things that you did was you took advantage of the fact that there's a carrier and a carried ant. So how... How are they treated differently in your experiments?
2: So we were interested in the carried ants. I mean, the carried ants are the ones that do the travel but do not walk. Right. That's, I mean, that's the point, basically. We have traveling ants that are not walking. So by now, we knew that ants are using a stride integrator or like this step counter. But how can you test if they are using optic flow, this this image motion across the eye, without... Interfering with with the, with this stride integration because ants usually always walk, mm-hmm. and here we had like the, this unique opportunity to test traveling ants that are not not walking.
0: So when you look to see whether or not optic flow was involved in navigation, could an ant that's being carried watch the world go by and then just walk back home? Did that work out?
2: Yeah. So this worked out. So when an ant was carried like a 10 meter distance and we separated it from the carrier and tested it in a in a test channel, the ant was walking back home and searching around like the fictive nest position and that is like the 10 meter mm-hmm. distance. So the ants were basically walking back 10 meters and searching for the nest that was obviously not there in the test channel. But the ants searched back and forth around the, the fictive nest position and that tells us that they are Although they were, like, traveling without walking, they still got the distance information. So they were perceiving optic flow or this this image motion and used that to gain the distance information.
0: Right. And so if you blindfolded these ants when they are being carried, they weren't able to find their way back to this uh, fake nest?
2: Exactly. So if they're blindfolded while being carried, they have no chance of gaining any distance information. They're not even using, like, this oscillatory movement or this, this vibration, basically, from the carry How
0: did you put little blinders on the hands?
2: We use cull paint, and that's a very established procedure since many years. So it's a f- very fast-drying paint, and you just apply it with a miniature needle.
0: And does it come back off?
2: It gets off very well, so this is the good thing. So it's basically like a contact lenses, so you can put them on and off,
0: I saw the images. They're bright yellow. It looks pretty cool on on an ant.
2: Yeah, we used the yellow because, you know, black paint is just hardly visible. (laughs) Yeah,
0: right. I would be able to tell. Um, So what is the fact that the ants use both of these measures to navigate? Optic flow, side integration. Is it just so that carried ants can get where they need to go? Or is there some other purpose for this?
2: It's always good to have a backup system. Redundancy in, in sensory information, that's, you know, that's a common, common thing in, in, in living things, in animals. You always want to get as much information as possible. And so in, in the case of the desert ant, it's, it's really important that they're getting like navigation right because this is very important for the colonies to survive. Mm-hmm. And since they n- need to, to measure very precisely the walking distance probably really good to have two systems that, that run like in parallel and that are all independent of each other. If one system fails, you still have a backup system. Right.
0: You don't want to be stranded in the desert. Exactly. At some point, they have to decide which one they're going to use to get back home, right?
2: Yeah. They're probably using both. I mean, that's what we're seeing in other experiments. They're probably using both at the same time. If they get like discrepancies in, in the input, if there is like conflicting input... They are trusting the more trustful input. That's interesting, too.
0: Hmm. So it depends on the situation. It's not just one always dominates.
2: Exactly. But they're really precise, and, and that's what they need to be. So they need to find home as quickly and as precisely as possible. I mean, otherwise, the colony just wouldn't survive.
0: Matthias, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Sarah.
2: It was really a pleasure to talk to you, too.
0: Matthias Whitlinger and Sarah Pfeffer write about ant navigation in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.